So every year at Easter, I always have a dilemma. Like, uh, the dilemma is, how do I come up with something a little bit new, a little bit fresh? You know, I don't want to just kind of go back to the Rolodex five or six years ago and bring that out. And so on um, this year, I thought that it would be interesting if I could prove something to you that you had to grapple with. Because in this room on an Easter morning, I realize there's multiple different types of people. There's lots of diversity even in this room. And, and you may not look at diversity nearly just in terms of ethnic issues, uh, but I'm grateful for that diversity. But there's also diversity in here in terms of faith. Like, think about it. There are some in here that you would say that, you know what, the only reason I'm here at Easter morning is because I'm dating a chick and her family comes here. And we're grateful that you're here. Like, we praise God that you're here. Um, there are some of you that you're here and you're like, I'm here because, you know, I am used to Easter. And, I mean, Easter is an experience for you. And, I mean, it's about new shoes and a new shirt. I mean, look at me. I have both, okay? <laughs> and it's like, it's just it's nostalgic, right? It brings back some memories. And you're like, I need to be in church on Easter Sunday. And we're grateful that you're here. There are others of us that we would truly, as Pastor Brian mentioned earlier, we'd believe that this is the linchpin of the Christian faith. That the reason we gather here is because this is a monumental occurrence for us in our faith. That, that if Jesus did not resurrect, then our faith is to be pitied, we are futile, and, and our lives are lived in vain. And we really should be playing golf or doing something different. But So there's a lot of different people. And I think today I want to speak to all of you. If you would say in here that, man, I claim to kind of be an atheist. I don't really believe there's a God and then we're grateful that you're here. And I hope that today you have to contemplate with something. Maybe you're here and you would say, well, I'm, I'm agnostic. I'm not sure there's a God. I don't have enough proof to say there's not, but I don't have enough evidence to suggest that there is. Or maybe you're here, and I think like most of us in this room, we would claim to believe in God, yet we all oftentimes don't live our lives for Him the way that He would like us to. Or maybe you're here and you would say, no, I am a devoted Christ follower. And oftentimes you'll look at them and they're kind of the lunatics in the room. You know what I'm saying? Like they sing louder, they raise their hands more, they seem to be a little bit vibrant. Praise God for them. Just pat them on your back, their back because they're the ones that blocked your view of the painting earlier, okay? <laughs> and we're grateful for all of them. But let me ask you a question. Do you realize what, what happened in 1947? In 1947, there were a couple of Bedouin shepherds that were... Um, wandering around um, the, the northwest edge of the Dead Sea, and they happened to upon a, a community now that we know as the Qumran community. And in the Qumran community, there, there were found a, a group of utensils, and there was a jar, but in that jar, there were seven different manuscripts that were in that jar. But one of the, the manuscripts that was unearthed, which I think is one of the most phenomenal to date, we have all of the Old Testament um, fragments and, and different things uh, throughout the Old Testament, with the exception of one book, and that's the book of Esther. We either have all or parts of every single Old Testament text, but one that we have is the entire scroll of Isaiah. It was found in 1947. It was among the very first group of scrolls found. It's 24 feet in length. It's 11 inches tall. It has 54 different columns of Hebrew text. And that is dated, carbon dated, which has been done four times. It dates consistently back to 324 to 350 years before Jesus. It's been paleographically dated several times and consistently comes back to 100 plus. Here's what I want you to see. In, in the text today, I thought it would be beneficial if I, instead of just reading from my Bible, that I actually showed you the Hebrew text. And then I actually highlight in red what the text was in Hebrew, and then I'll tell you what it is today in English. If it was, 
in a sense, just you know, documented so that you see. That way you could go, okay, this is what the text is and says, and then you can go, wow, that's pretty impressive that 700 year, years before Christ ever came to be, Isaiah penned these words, but this manuscript, maybe written by a scribe in precision detail, we have it to 300 years before Jesus. Now, let, let's just say hypothetically that you're a skeptic in here, and you go, no, 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 we're not going to carbon date that 300, but you'll, you'll take the 100. Well, let me ask you a question. What are, the, what are the chances that any one of us in this room would take 100 years out, and we would prophesy about one man and get him right? But Isaiah is going to write about a man. And he's going to write about a man that seems to come from the nation of Israel. And he's going to bring hope to many nations. And the question that you have to ask yourself today is, as we walk through this text, is number one, is this document reliable? Because if it is reliable, then you have to contemplate the words on the page. The second question is, if it is reliable, then who is it speaking of specifically? Like, who is the person that the text is grappling with, and then what do we do with it from there? And so today, I want to just dive into the text. I'm not really going to preach it. I'm just going to read it to you and kind of tell you, I guess, in a sense, what it says. And then from there, you get to make up your own mind at the very end of the day as to what step you might need to take, depending on where you are in your own life. But in Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13, you're going to see that there's going to be a man that's brought to the picture. Now, in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 12, you see that Isaiah is talking about this nation, Israel, and, and they have been through some really tumultuous and really tough times. I mean, they have taken it on the chin by the hands of a lot of different people. The Babylonians took them, kicked them out of the land. The Persians allowed them back into the land, but a lot of them didn't go back. Then you had the, the Grecians that propped up. You had the Medes. You had... Um, the Romans, and, and when, when we see Jesus, the Romans are in charge. And get this, after the hand of the Romans, AD 70, the people of Israel would be booted out of their land until, get this, 1948, a year after the Bedouin shepherds found the text in the Dead Sea Scroll community. And so they're literally gone from, from their homeland for 2,000 plus years. But all during this time, although the nation has been rejected, they've been kind of kicked around quite a bit, God promises that there's going to be a Savior that's raised up and that He's going to be a servant for the nation of Israel and ultimately for most of us in this room. And in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. If you can see it on the screen, it's highlighted in red. It, it says, the, the servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, is what the text says, and that he should be exalted. And so the question really is, is, okay, who is the servant? I think it could be a capital S. I think the servant is the person, the work of a guy named Jesus. And here's why, because look at the rest of the text. It says that he shall act wisely. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you guys in here, ladies too, have acted a fool here lately? Go ahead, raise your hand. You know, you know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about like at your kid's soccer game. You, like, you, 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 you say something mean to the referee, right? You know, you know what I'm talking like your kid's baseball game or like to your husband last night when you realized that he spent $100 at Target he didn't have permission to spend. You know what I'm talking about? You ever acted a fool? Yes? Raise your hand if you've ever acted a fool. Okay, if you haven't acted a fool, come see me because we're going to put you in a category with Jesus and I'm not sure you belong there, okay? But here's the deal. Like we've all acted a fool. I always say that I am one of the chief fools in this room. Like I'm an idiot sometimes. You know what I'm talking about? Like I'm just an idiot. I say things I shouldn't say. I think things I shouldn't think and... But the bottom line is, is that there's going to be one servant who would come that he would act wisely. It's the picture of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, yet we have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. 
So you have a servant who is going to act wisely. In a sense, when we all seem to sin and we all seem to be doing things that are foolish, we have one that's not going to be a fool. We have one that's not going to utter words that shouldn't come from our lips. We're going to have one that's not hateful or slanderous. We're going to have one who is perfect in every way. And then get this, he's going to be high and lifted up. What does that mean? I think it's twofold, personally. I think it's John chapter 3. It's, a, it's a, the one who would be high and lifted up, exalted on a cross, that anyone look to him, what? Should have everlasting life. So that if you hold the Son high and lifted up, that you put your faith in Him, that He's going to cover you, He's going to blot out your transgressions. But I also think it's the picture of Philippians chapter 2, that one day God is going to exalt His Son. How? He's going to give Him a name that's above all names. A name that's above heaven and earth, a name that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess and ultimately bend before. So God is going to exalt this servant who has done no wrong, and he exalts him in two ways. He exalts him high and lifted up on the cross, and one day, because of his suffering servant, he exalts him above all of humanity, above all of the heavens. So the question is, is who is this man? And in verse 14, it says, And as many were not astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of any of the children of mankind. It's the idea that many of us can't really wrap our head around because you and I oftentimes see pictures of Jesus, right? We see him hanging on the cross, but I mean, somehow we seem to recognize who this guy is. I mean, yes, don't get me wrong, he's got a little bit of blood flowing down, but it's nothing compared to the visage and the, the martyr that was at the hands of the Roman soldiers. I mean, think about this. We know that Jesus was whipped at least 49 times. We know that he was whipped by uh, a whip that would have most likely had rope and then shards of glass and bone and sharp teeth in them in a sense that they would bend them across his back and time and time after time they would rip flesh from his back to the point that I think Mel Gibson kind of got a little bit right in The Passion of the Christ but even then I don't think it does justice to the fact that his back laid open and bone was visible. That they took a crown of thorns, they pressed it down on his head, that even the thorns would dig down even to the depths of his skull. That there would be blood profusely running down. And then you have the, the, the gospel account of Luke in chapter uh, 22. and In Luke 22, verses 63-64, it says the group of men blindfolded Jesus and they struck him time after time after time on the face. And then they would say, Jesus, prophesy now. Who was it the one that just hit you? So it would almost look like Jesus had gotten met in the back of an alley with a group of men who beat him and marred him and left him for dead. And that's what they hung on the cross. And so here it is. You couldn't even look on him and behold the form or the semblance of the man. That's how beaten he was. But he did that, verse 15. So what? He would sprinkle many nations. Matter of fact, it says that kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which he has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they now understand. It's the idea that one day people are going to come to a halt because they're going to recognize who he is. That kings are going to shudder, but more than that, nations would benefit. So think about this. Isaiah is writing 700 years earlier on the scroll that's right in, right in front of you. The actual scroll that's 300 years ahead. They talk about a servant that's going to be high and lifted up, but get this, he's going to sprinkle himself for who? Israel? No, it says the nations. What an incredible thing that the nations would be blessed by Israel's servant. 
that you and I would potentially become clean. And in the sprinkling in that day and time, the priests would take the blood of bulls or goats and they would sprinkle it over the altar and that's how they would find forgiveness. So the analogy simply is this, that Jesus would sprinkle himself, his blood would be sprinkled so that you and I might what? Find peace and forgiveness. And then in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, it, it begins to, to, to take a little bit of a twist. I mean, we see who the person is, but the question is, is what is he doing? Why is he here? And in verse 1, it says, Who has believed what he had heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He goes, who's going to believe what I'm talking about? I mean, he's, he is truly expecting that people are going to miss who Jesus is. I mean, here it is, a guy who is God's representative. He's the rescuer. He's the guy who brings restoration. And yet, somehow, he's going to be overshadowed by man's rejection. I mean, that's us today. Like many of us look on the screen and we, we're, so, we're so quick to pass judgment on what the scriptures say or about what God wants to do in our life. Why? Because we reject him. And the question is, is why? Why did the Israelites reject him? Why do we reject him? And in verse 2, it says, for he grew up like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. I mean, anybody mowed their yard lately? Raise your hand if you've mowed your Okay, let me, better question. How many of you need to mow your yard? There you go, Okay. So uh, when I mow my yard, there are a couple of stumps that I know they're there, but every time I mow, I hit them. Every time. And every time, it makes me act a fool. You know what I'm talking about? Mostly because I know they're there. But here's what I notice. This dead stump that's cut off of the ground, I can go to it right now, and there's a shoot of new life coming out of the side of it. That is this text. Out of a dry, rotten stump, there is a new growth forming. And, and that's Israel. Israel was a dry, barren land. They were under the oppression of Rome. And behold, Isaiah said, but there will come from one out of the stump of a ground. It's the Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Listen to what Isaiah says here, which is incredible. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's like there's this dead stump, and every single spring there's one shoot that comes stemming out. And it's something that's alive from something dead. That is the picture, and, and Isaiah simply says that's what you can look for. It's going to come out of dry ground. Nazareth was the driest ground there was from the region of Galilee. Like Jesus didn't come as a prominent king. He didn't come as a guy who everybody was you know, bowing to and bending their knee to. He was just a guy. Like He was a guy that was, seemed to be pretty humble. Matter of fact, verse 2, the latter part says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Like Jesus wasn't going to be the homecoming king. He wasn't going to be the guy that won the popularity contest. He wasn't going to be the guy that was the class clown. He wasn't going to be the life of the party. Matter of fact, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and he was esteemed not. He would have been the guy that wandered in here today and no one really spoke to. As you're eating your donuts and drinking your coffee, as you're greeting all the people you know, he's the guy who would have wandered in here and you would have said, Who's he? I don't know him. He would have been lowly despised and rejected. He wouldn't have stolen the show. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have drawn your attention. Matter of fact, you would have probably skipped right over the top of him because he was humble and he was meek. But the question is, is why such a humble, meek servant? And here's why. 
Look at verses 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 11, 12. I'm going to put them for you all up the screen at one time. Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 4. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse 5. It is by his wounds that we were healed. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, stricken for the transgressions of my people. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's design. He put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, yet it was he that bore the sin of the many. It was him that makes intercession for the transgressions. Do you know why Jesus is there? Because of you. Because of me. Because of all the foolish things I've done in my life, Jesus is there, a suffering servant, high and lifted up to set sinful man free. If you look at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, I, I just want to cover them real quickly. It says, Surely he was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. I mean, think about it. If you're the skeptic here, one of the questions that you ask yourself is this. Okay, if God loved his son, and this servant that Isaiah is talking about really is God's son, then why would God let his son die an agonizing death? And matter of fact, even when the soldiers mocked him and said, Hey, Jesus... Hey, if you really are the Christ child, if you really are the Savior of the world, then hop down off this cross, save yourself. Then why didn't he do that? Like, like if, if this is God's son, then why is he hanging between two criminals? That's a worthy question. Why does he seem to be stricken by God? For you. For me. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It was the chastisement of him that brought us peace. It was by his wounds that we were healed. Every, every single wound that he endured was for you and I. Verse 6, and all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And what? Then it says, and the Lord has laid up on him the iniquity of us all. Now think about this. What does that mean? What is he talking about? He's talking about a serving servant, about him dying between men that, that, that were criminals and about him in some sense shouldn't be there but he is and, and then the question is, is why and verse 6 answers it it's because of you and I remember you like you've said that you and I know like you and I sheep that have gone astray think about this why would why would Roman governors put lions in a coliseum and watch them fight why, why would they take Christians and, and, and unleash them and let lions run around and devour them. Why? Because that was fun to watch, right? Like, why did Michael Vick take roosters and pit them against each other? Although, I shouldn't mention that because I'm sure he's already asked forgiveness. But why did he do that? Because they like to fight, right? But let me ask you a question. Would you ever take a lamb and pit another lamb together? No. Why? Because a lamb's not going to do anything to another lamb. I mean, he's going to look at it, right? But even beyond that, think about this. Think about lambs. Lambs would be extinct without man. They would be gone. They would be devoured. They would have run themselves off of cliffs. Why? Because man is a shepherd for a lamb. A lamb cannot live without man. Just as the writer here says that you and I cannot live without a shepherd. Why? Because sheep are no good when left to their own devices. You and I just admitted earlier that we are foolish. Can you imagine how foolish that we oftentimes must be when we have no guide in our life to help us stay on the right path? 
And so this, this man came so that we would no longer have to what, do life alone. That we would have a good shepherd. And what was it that Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, I am the good, what? Shepherd. Verse 7 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He was like a sheep that was silent for its shears. So he opened not his mouth. We prove from historical context that Jesus endured six different trials in the hands of five different men or groups of men, and not one time did he utter a thing. It wasn't because Jesus didn't somehow have control of his life. I mean, he was silent, but he wasn't helpless. And the reason why is because God put him there. And he was there for a reason. Verse 8 says it was by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, he was considered to be cut off from the land of the living. It means he would die. He was stricken with the transgression of the people. Verse 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked. He hung between two criminals. But all of a sudden, there was a man who swept in at Jesus' death. And he was what? With a rich man in his death. So think about this. Jesus was hung with criminals. He was marred as a human visage. And they would have taken him off of that cross because of the Passover weekend, and they would have done a couple of things with him. One, they could have taken him and thrown him into the valley of Gehenna and let his body rot. Had it not been the Passover, they would probably just left him hanging on the cross until his body rotted. I mean, crucifixion wasn't new. Three crosses is not all there was on the skull of, of Calvary. Matter of fact, Josephus writes, and we talked about this last week, that, that oftentimes Rome would crucify up to 500 people a day. And so Jesus is just one of many. And somehow we look at it and we think, oh, wow, Jesus was, he was mistreated. But we know that he wasn't mistreated. God, God didn't allow man somehow to get it wrong, but God actually got it right. Why? Because he put his son on the cross of Calvary for you and I. And then when it looked like they would take his body and go throw it into the valley of Gehenna, there was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea that swept in and said, I have a grave for him. And they took him off the cross. And Isaiah writes about it 700 years before this servant would ever come to be. And then verse 10 says, And yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It was not the erroneous mistake of men. It was God's wisdom. And then you may be here and you go, Well, okay, I get this, man. The death of, of, of you know, Jesus, okay, I see that. I have to contemplate that. But man, isn't this Easter Sunday? And indeed it is. And Isaiah knew that after a long, hard winter for Israel, that there would be a spring day. Matter of fact, do you know why I appreciate this text so much? Do you know why I appreciate this great scroll of Isaiah? Do you uh, realize why I appreciate the text behind me? It's because it strengthens my faith. Why? Because I have been through many hard winters in my life. I have been through agonizing defeat. I have been through pain and loss and people that I loved. I have seen people that I love have been betrayed. And you know it too, right? The sting that oftentimes comes through difficult times. But through every difficult winter, there is a spring day in which the wind will blow and the rain will fall and something out of nothing will come alive. And we see that Jesus speaks specifically of that through Isaiah, in verse 10, it says, And he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper. So he shall see his offspring. That means that he is not dying for no reason. Why? Because he'll see all the nations that he died for again. 
The second thing is is, is that he'll live for a long time. Jesus prolonged his days. Yes, he went to the heart of the earth for three days, but then he arose. And just as my little girl, who's four-year-old, prayed every single night, and God, we thank you, God, we thank you, that not on the first day, not on the second day, but on the third day, Jesus came back alive. Isaiah promised that he would come back alive, and he would prolong his days that death would not defeat him, that death would not swallow up Jesus, but Jesus would swallow up death, and that the Lord shall prosper in his hand, meaning that God's purposes would triumph over Satan, death, and the grave. And it is the picture of Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Why? Because this was God's plan. And because it was God's plan, we can celebrate verse 11 and 12, and I think they're the best in all of this. Because out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus was satisfied to hang on the cross for you. He was satisfied to see you and I at our worst, and by his knowledge shall see the righteous one, my servant, and make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That last part of verse 11 is the acorn form of the book of Romans. And more than that, it is the almost identical text to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53.11 simply says this, what, that my servant would what, be made what, accounted righteous to you and he shall bear their iniquities. This incredible transfer, he takes our sin and he gives us life. He takes our death and springs forth a new shoot. An amazing story of redemption. And then in verse 12, it says, And therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In the first coming, he came to die. On the second one, he'll come to reign on high. And here's the glorious picture. He says, When he does, it'll be like a king after a victory in war, do you know what they would do? They would take all the spoils of the war and they would take them from the men and the women and the kids and they would bring them to the camp and they would divide all the spoils of war. And what that simply says is this, is that when Jesus overcame death and the grave, he is going to take all of its splendor and it delights him to not only die for you, but to give you a share of his eternal glory. He is going to take all of the plunder, all the things that he took, and he trampled over Satan, all of that spoils of war, and he's going to hand them out in delight to the brothers of Jesus and the sons and the daughters of God. And guess what? I want to be one of those. Amen? And so here it is. I, we close. But, but let me ask you this question. You go, okay, Brandon, I get it, man. I got I to do some research over the, the scroll of Isaiah. I need to look at it, and maybe I need to examine that a little bit more closely because it's hard to dispute what was written hundreds of years before Jesus. But let me ask you a question. What about for all of us in here? Have you ever really been able to experience the idea of God's sacrifice for you? Like, have you ever really been able to feel the weight of that? I heard a story long ago that many would say is true and some would say it's not. But if it is true, it's reflective of a man in the 1920s and 30s named John Griffith. John had a little eight-year-old boy, and he was a widower himself. And his pride and joy was this boy. Obviously, the delight of this little boy was his father. 
Like, they loved to spend time together. And this little boy, he, he wasn't your average little boy. Like, he, he was able to, like, slow down and, like, smell the roses, you know? Like, he understood life. He, he enjoyed people, and he watched them. He loved trains. And one of the things that his, his dad did was he, he actually conducted the bridge across the Mississippi River. And, and this little boy, any time he got a chance to go to work with him, he wanted to. If he wasn't in school or with his friends, then he wanted to be with his dad, and he wanted to go to work. And if he could do that every day, he would. And any time that his dad could take this little boy with him to work, he would, he would be delighted to do so. Well, he, he was enamored, this little boy, with all the things that went out in and out on this bridge. I mean, the gearboxes, how the bridge went up and how it came down, how the how it would have to be pressurized and how steam would have to be built up just to lower the device. But on this one day when he was fishing nearby, as he oftentimes would do, he realized something. He realized that a train was coming early. And he said, Daddy! 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 His dad was building up steam because he had just let a ship go by and he wasn't expecting, but he just kept crying out, Daddy! 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 He could see the steam. He heard the train billowing down the tracks, and he decided that he was going to take matters into his own hand. He knew that his dad had showed him the, the emergency valve, that if he could go and somehow with his own strength muster the power to, to flip it, that he would. His dad looking in, oh, in panic, not seeing his son in his rightful place, wondering all at once he sees his son, and he's, he's at a place where he's about to push this gear. And as he does... An accident takes place, and he falls into the gearbox. Now, as this dad watches all of this, he knows that there's a train of 400 passengers coming quickly, and he also knows that there is no way in his rightful mind that he's going to get all the way down to his son, somehow manage to get back up. And so now he has this incredible dilemma. I can lower the bridge, and I can crush my one and only 8-year-old son, or I can crush him and let 400 people live, or I can save his life and 400 people sitting on a train as if they do every other day are going to go to their demise. I mean, here it is. They're, they're just normal people. I mean, some of them are anger. Some of them are bitter. But this dad has delivered. What, what do I do? This dilemma. Do I save my son and lead 400 people to death? Or do I lead 400 people to death and save my son? And he chooses to crush his son. And 400 people on that train go passing by. Now, can you imagine this daddy? I mean, he, he has just lowered this device. He has nothing on his mind other than the fact this bridge would lower. But even then, he is running frantically to his son. And as this train passes, it is filled with passengers just like you and me. I mean, people who are angry and bitter even in this moment. People who are addicted and who are struggling with things. Who are holding on to baggage and the weight of things that go far beyond even this month or this year. But it's things that you and I can't control some. It's addictions that you just can't give up. And here it is. This father has given everything up for these people. And he watches a boy eat ice cream as they pass by. He watches passengers as they nonchalantly do what they've always done. He goes, what have I done for you? Do you not know what I've done for you? Can you imagine that none of them seem to notice, but yet one passenger drifted with one of the most powerful decisions he ever made. 
He crushes his boy for passengers that don't seem to even notice what great of a sacrifice took place. If history is true, they would say that though this man was crushed by the agony of of his eight-year-old son's death, that there was one passenger on that train that actually reached out by letter and said, thank you, because I heard the sacrifice of your son. Now let me ask you, would that make it worth it? I mean, 300 plus people never even noticed what a sacrifice, but what if there was just one that did? Wouldn't that be worth it? And I think for the father, if you could imagine when he actually got a letter, in this case, depicted in this story of the movie Most, or The Bridge as you may know it, that's the one thing that brought delight to his heart, to know that when someone seemed to be broken and dead, that there was hope and that there could be a spring branch break forth from something dead, that new life would begin. That's an exhilarating victory. That you know that one boy dies so other people may live. You may be here today and you may go, Brandon, man, you went to great lengths to help me fill that. But I want you to understand whether that story is true or not. That boy died by accident, according to any story that you would hear on this. But I want to tell you about one who did not die by accident. And his name is the servant of the Most High King. His name is Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this, he died for you. He died so that you would quit riding on your oblivious train of life, doing what you do, somehow, oftentimes, navigating through your own world and saying, ah, I just, this is just the way I am. No, this is not the way you have to be because God gave up much more than that for you and he gave up his son. And get this, it wasn't by accident. Matter of fact, before you ever took a breath, the Bible said that he predestined to put his son on the cross in between two criminals to be saved by a man who was rich of Joseph of Arimathea and put his body in a tomb that three days later he would raise from the grave. Why? Because he wanted to count for your life more than what you want to count your life for on your own. And I pray that you would not miss the moment and the magnitude that no longer do you have to be trapped in your sin. No longer do you have to be identified the way that people identify you. No longer do you have to be chained to your past. Why? Because there is one who died on the cross of Calvary to stand in your place, to make you righteous, to take your sin and to place it upon his son Jesus. And my prayer is today that there would be one, just one person, who throughout all of this would say, no more, no more. I'm going to trust Jesus today. And my prayer is that you would trust him. But I also pray that this message would strengthen your faith and remind you of a great sacrifice that was told long before Jesus ever came to thee. 700 years before the servant would make an appearance, riding the foal of a donkey into a town of Jerusalem to be slayed for you and me. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for this morning.
And God, I pray that somehow we would sense the magnitude of this. And I pray that we would grapple with this idea of Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that we who have believed in you are joint heirs in Christ. And if we suffer with you in this life, we will be glorified together in the next. And so God, thank you for taking the, the divide of the spoil of the triumphs of war. Thank you for overcoming sin and death and the grave. Thank you for delighting to do so, that it was a satisfaction and a delight. It was what you love to do, to give up your life for me. You delight to save us. And while we look at one father's agonizing decision, Lord, we know that it was never a decision that our father had to grapple with because he knew the only way that he would look upon us in our human flesh, the only way that he would look upon us in our sinful hearts, is if there was a perfect substitute that stood in our place. And God, I'm thankful that I'm not left as a, as, a, as a lamb led to the slaughter. I'm thankful, Lord, that I'm not left to my own devices. But I'm thankful, Lord, that there is one who is the great high priest, who is the shepherd of all men, who wants to lead me towards green pastures and still waters, and who wants to protect me from the valley of the shadow of death. And his name is Jesus, the great shepherd. Thank you, God, that he was high and lifted up. And that today, whoever would look to him would be saved and have eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.